May we bow our heads as we pray together. Lord God, in the hearing and attending to your word this evening, may we find that we too go in peace, not the peace of an idle calm, but the peace of hearts and minds settled with you and aware of our business in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you realise, this is the first Sunday in the month of August, and it is therefore officially the silly season. Uh, Nothing important in the world is supposed to happen uh, in August, and of course that's borne out by all that we've heard this week. Nothing important has gone on, has it? Apart from the collapse of an entire economic system, or near so. And there are some of us for whom all the year is a silly season. I've known people who, Christians, who turn off the news, the radio, because it's full of bad news. I've known others who are more like myself, who uh, can scarcely go into a room without turning on the radio to hear the news, because for some peculiar reason we're simply almost addicted to it. Uh, It's silly season, so I myself am uh, taking holiday on Tuesday. I'll be off to America. Uh, And the great news is, when I'm in America, I can still get the BBC these days. So even in America, I can find my addiction has got an outlet. The story of the Bible is a story of politics, considered in one way. After all... What begins in a garden uh, rapidly moves to the city, the city of Babel, which is created as a monument to the pride of humankind, Uh, a monument to our pride which will almost deliberately keep out the voice of the living God. And God brings that entire experiment crashing uh, to the ground. But, of course, by the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we find that the garden, uh, that the paradise garden, has become the paradise city. There are some trees allowed in uh, the city of God in Revelation. But really what we are, what is on display for us there, is the perfect life of human community. And in one sense, the Bible moves between these worlds. And in the silly season, the second book of Kings is concerned with politics, with how God is going to make space for himself in a world that often tries to squeeze him out. Now, of course, that sounds good. God is going to get a look in. God is going to get a voice. That sounds great. But when we look at this story of of the first of the great characters in the second book of Kings... It can look completely irrelevant. Let me just try and set something of the scene. Israel is, uh, that's the the northern kingdom, is on a path of decline. David and Solomon ruled over a united kingdom, but by the time that we come to our stories that will occupy us for the next few weeks, the kingdoms have split into a north, which is known as Israel, and the south, which is known as Judah. 
And there's a kind of moral decline among the kings of Israel through that time. And God brings other countries, other armies to bear on his people as a punishment and as a kind of wake-up call. And that's the kind of background that's going on as we consider Naaman, who you'll see from chapter, sorry, from verse 1 of chapter 5, it's on page 373 if you've closed your Bibles, he was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now, I mean, there are times when we would struggle to realize where that is, but with Syria so much in the news, it, it, it helps us to translate that. Aram is simply Syria. It sounds good that God is going to make a space for himself. But in reality, what he does can look almost irrelevant. First of all, consider the the shape of the kingdom that's on display in chapter 5. It is topsy-turvy. It is upside down. We know now, don't we, that God has a bias to the poor. That God is concerned for the humble and the meek. So what on earth is God doing, being nice to a man of war? He was, Naaman, a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. He is a man of power. So what is God doing, being nice to a man of power, when according to most things we've heard, he was supposed to care for the humble and the meek? He is a man of Syria. Imagine how this story would read if in, contemporary, in modern terms we heard that God was being nice to President Assad of Syria and we know what he's responsible for. When we thought we understood a God who was supposed to be nice and kind to his people of Israel. What's going on in this story? The kings... Uh, bless them, are completely clueless. The, um, the Naaman, who has this terrible disease, goes to his master, the king, and uh, who says, by all means, go. <clears throat> the king of Syria understands politics. I know what we need here. I'm going to send you with a letter to the king of Israel, and that will sort it out, because I've written a letter. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Not surprising that the king of Israel has a fit. He tore his robes and said, Oh my God, can I kill and bring back to life? The kings, who are deeply wrapped up in the world of politics, haven't really got a clue what is going on here. Who does have a clue? Well, the slaves do. Uh, There's a, a young girl from Israel... Uh, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Slave knows what's going on. And then later on, the uh, slaves are the ones who say to Naaman, uh, after he's had this message from Elisha, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry, this is verse 11, I thought he'd surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Aren't Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them? Naaman's servants, verse 13, went to him and said. 
Nothing happens really in this story because of the kings. Everything that happens, happens because of the slaves. A, A final sign of this bizarre world that this story takes us into. If you look at um, at verse 5, so Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets sets of clothing. And you look at the the little letters B and C there, and then look down to the bottom of your page. He's got with him about uh, 340 kilograms of silver and 70 kilograms of gold. Now, even before all our currencies plummeted and the price of gold rose, that was a lot of dosh. In fact, they reckon that it actually would have been able to buy the territory, actually buy the whole hill of Samaria on which uh, this territory uh, was kind of founded about five times over. For the kings, for Naaman, for all the mighty people in this story, This really amounts to a kind of farce, a sort of French farce, with people going in and out of doors, nobody really knowing what's going on. There's a complete and general cluelessness about what's happening. The kingdom of God, as it's on display in in its effectiveness here, is throwing everything upside down. Well, we'd say that's fine. Jesus did that. Jesus came along and uh, told told us of uh, those who are blessed, surprisingly, in the sight of the world, and yet, the kingdom here is also, I venture to say, completely feeble. After all, at the end of this story, what has changed? Well, Naaman hasn't got leprosy anymore. Great. But look at what hasn't changed. Elisha hasn't done anything. All Elisha has said is uh, to one of his servants, um, oh yeah, go and, go and get him... Go and get him to do something. There's no activity by uh, Elisha. We know there is going to be no witness in Syria because Naaman has asked for permission in verse 17 uh, to uh, lay out some earth and and worship the, the, the true God. But actually, every time his master, the king, goes into the temple of Rimmon, he's going to be by his side and says, do you mind if nothing changes, please? And Elisha amazingly says, go in peace. There's no real understanding of how God works. Who are the heroes? Well, it's the slaves. It's the, it's the little slave girl. And the slaves who come and tell Naaman what to do. But has anything changed for them? We don't know about it. Nothing seems to have done. They are not raised up and given the keys of the house. Nothing changes. Everything is as it was, except that Naaman is healed. And you have to ask then, what would be missing, really, if this story weren't here? If we simply took a knife to this story and took it out of your Bibles, would it really make any difference? Well, I want to suggest that it would be, there would be a difference. I suppose that surprised you. Um... I think it's a story about God. Not about Naaman, not about Elisha, not about the slaves. I think it's a story about God and his character. God in this story is what we call sovereign. That is, 
It's up to him to decide what happens. It's up to him to decide to have this kind of upside-down approach to the way things work out. No one in this story is in a situation where they can tell God what to do. God will do things his own way. There's there's that moment in verse 14. So uh, Naaman, who's had this instruction to go and wash, and his slaves have persuaded him now to wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. In a way, that is the hinge of the story. Naaman simply did what he was told to do. It's God's world. And sovereignty tells us that God wants it back. He will be the one who's responsible for taking it back in his own terms. He will be the one who, over time, in ways that may be mysterious, put the kings down. In terms of the Song of Mary, he puts down the mighty from its seat and lifts up the humble and meek. But he does it in his own time, in his own way, and we have no claim upon him. Naaman thinks he's got a claim because he's turned up with gifts. Gifts to buy uh, not only Elisha's power, but to buy Elisha, to to buy Elisha's king, to buy the whole territory five times over. Naaman thinks he's got a claim. Look what I've brought for you. But God says, no, I don't care about that. Don't care about any of that. Just go and wash. We have no claim of any kind upon God. How much better it is to follow a free and a sovereign God than a God who would do what we said. There are times, aren't there, when all of us would love to be in a position of bargaining with God. God, I'll give you this. I'll do this for you, if you will do this for me. And it would be, in some ways, consoling to be able to stand here and say, yes, if you do this for God, then God will do good things for you. But God's uh, uh, viewpoint is not so short We trust that good things happen. We trust that this is part of a bigger story, as indeed it proves to be, in which good things happen for the people of God. But you can't always find them within the little portion of a story that is going on. Now, here's just an illustration of this. I have told this uh, story before, and if you you, uh, have heard it, then, then please forgive me. When I was 12, I went off on a skiing trip with uh, my school to Switzerland. In those days, schools could afford to go to Switzerland. And uh, it was seven days, six days of skiing. And after half an hour on the first day on the slopes, I uh, slipped and broke my leg. The ski fell over it and, and my leg broke. Half an hour. My parents weren't particularly rich. It had cost them an enormous amount to save the, 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 for the trip... And after half an hour of six days of skiing, I broke my leg. So I was carted off to hospital in Montreux, 
uh, and I hated it. Um, I'm sure it was a perfectly good hospital, but I'd never been into hospital. Um, and uh, uh, just vaguely I could see some mountains uh, through the window. And I was compelled at the age of 12 to speak French, uh, to make myself understood. But if I hadn't spoken French in that hospital in Montreux, I would never have got good grades in my A-levels, because my spoken French improved hugely. If I hadn't got good grades in my A-levels, I would never have gone to Brussels to be a chaplain. If I hadn't gone to Brussels, I would never have met my wife. And so as I occasionally remind Natalie, she and I got together because I broke my leg in Switzerland. I spent that week... Christian stuff was irrelevant, and this is not an illustration of that, that point. But I spent that week in the most intense frustration. Because half an hour into skiing, out of six days, I broke my leg. And yet, good things have eventually come. But for a good part of, for many years after the, the, that age of 12, if you had said, has anything good come out of that, I would have had to say no. It's been completely pointless, it was a waste of money. <clears throat> A waste of effort. God's time frame is not as short as ours tends to be. And his sovereignty, the, the notion of God's freedom, guarantees that sense that good things will happen in your life and in mine, but not necessarily in the time frame that we want to demand it. When we read... He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. What the man of God, what Elisha said, was the word of God. That's simply the response that uh, is offered. Uh, Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, keeps coming that phrase, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him the message, why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. He'll know that there's someone, there's a man of God who speaks God's word. And I don't know why this, this is not the only passage in which this has struck me recently. How extraordinary it is that there is a God who has a word. And by that I mean this, that God is not compelling anything in this story. Nothing, in one sense, happens because God makes it happen, as it's read out to us. God is not forcing things. However, God is pulling together a slave girl and a king, and an army, and a general, and a prophet. And entirely freely, it would seem, God is knitting that together in such a way that there is a good outcome. And in every case, it's because the word of God is being spoken or ignored, obeyed, by those different people. It is God's characteristic that he addresses us and makes it possible for us to use the word of God to address others. God enters into relationship, not by compelling or by ignoring, but by addressing a word, and that that means we, we are summoned. Jesus never compels. He may command, he may invite, he may ask, but he never compels. He speaks a word, and something has to happen. It's extraordinary that we have a God who is like that. But extraordinary even more that we get to speak 
the word of God. We've sung of the wonder of knowing your voice. We can speak the word of God precisely because we are not responsible for a kind of mechanical uh, input that, that guarantees a particular output. If you came to church this evening knowing that you would leave with an obligation to do something, X, and that Y would happen, how dull that would be. We're not involved in a small, tame God who asks us to do something and then it's predictable what happens. We get to speak the word of God not knowing what will happen. And that's part of the story here. And the question is whether we find that more dull or more interesting than a mechanical response. When we pray, we're using the word of God because we pray in Jesus' name. If we proclaim God and his action in the world, if we evangelize, we are speaking the word of God. If we encourage one another, it is the word of God inspired by his spirit. When we sing God's praise, it is the word of God because it is his own word returning to him. I thank God from this story that when I speak the word of God, not just from here, but in the rest of my life, I am not being asked to take responsibility for all that will then unfold because of it. It is God's word. He will do things through it in his world. And I thank God that I'm not responsible for the outcome. Sometimes an outcome I will see. Many times I will not. We don't see very much outcome in this particular story. But the story is there to encourage us along the way because in most of our life, we don't actually see much particular outcome either. And so let's pray to our unpredictable God. Lord God, you know those times in our lives where we have wanted a predictable God. Where we have come to you perhaps sometimes in desperation and longed to be able to say, we'll do this for you if you'll do that for us. And we've been at our most serious in that longing at the times when we've been most desperate. And it can be hard to take on board a passage like this with that sense of very few people knowing what's going on. So much mystery, so much uncertainty, so much unpredictability. And yet we thank you that you are bigger than our ambitions. Bigger even than our most desperate hopes. Bigger than our longings. Bigger than all we can summon you to be. We ask that you would be sovereign and free in each of our lives.
where we see a path for us to walk in, then give us grace to take it. But there are many times in life where we do not see such a path. And we pray that we may have confidence that when the path is unclear, you still remain the sovereign God who will be faithful to your people. We ask this that Jesus Christ may be glorified, him who is the very word of God made flesh for our salvation and for your glory. Amen.